You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulavan Barwari. This is the final episode of season one, a special episode that features a discussion with Sophia Schultz, the Director of International Programs at Arch International, as well as Julie Rockwell and Catherine Vecchi, both of whom have completed a Master's of Arts degree in Museum Studies at the John Hopkins University this month. The discussion is about the Stan with Nineveh project, which is the restoration of the Shrine of the Prophet Nahum. But before the interview, here's the latest news update on the Kurdistan region. As usual, we will begin with the KRG-Baghdad relations. A KRG delegation headed by Deputy Prime Minister Qubat Talabani visited Baghdad in December 9th to continue negotiations with Iraqi officials about the region's share of the 2021 federal budget and other financial matters. In mid-November, the Iraqi parliament passed a controversial budget deficit law, which was boycotted by the Kurdish lawmakers. The law requires the KRG to submit all of its oil and non-oil revenues to get its partial share of the budget, which is less than what the KRG requires to meet its needs every month. At the core of the problem is that the deficit law contradicted the understanding in August between Baghdad and Erbil. Although Kurdish leaders initially rejected the budget deficit law and viewed it as an attack on the principles of equality and coexistence in Iraq, the KRG is now accepting it, with the wider aim of getting an agreement on the budget for 2021. The KRG delegation met with the Iraqi Prime Minister, Mustafa Kadhimi, and his cabinet. It also visited the parliament and met with Mohammed Halbousi, the speaker of the Iraqi parliament, his deputies and several committee chairs to express KRG's commitment to fulfilling its duties and obligations in accordance with the Iraqi constitution and the deficit law. On a positive note, on December 19th, Ali Alawi, Iraq's finance minister, announced an agreement with the KRG on the 2021 draft budget bill. Qubat Talabani also announced the agreement at a press conference in Baghdad on December 22nd. The delegation is also discussing its allocations for this year, as Baghdad has sent only six payments of public sector salaries in 2020. One thing that is certain is that the KRG is genuinely committed to reaching a long-term agreement with Baghdad. This point was reiterated by the KRG Prime Minister, Masur Barzani, during his meeting on December 20th with Janine Highness Plashar the Special Representative of the Secretary General for the United Nations Assistant Mission for Iraq. The KRG Prime Minister stated, quote, I indicated that the Kurdistan region did not leave any justifications for the Baghdad government to settle the problems in pursuit of an agreement on the basis of the Constitution. Also, on December 23rd, Prime Minister Masoud Barzani called on the United Nations to take part in future negotiations between Baghdad and Erbil to reach a long-term agreement on the disputes between the two sides which include oil, land, and the federal budget. The Kurdistan region president, Nechirvan Barzani, also made the same request during his meeting with the UN Special Representative on December 20th. And now, I'll pivot to the latest developments in the Kurdistan region. December has been an unusually precarious month for the Kurdistan region. First, the severe economic recession caused by the coronavirus pandemic and falling oil prices coupled with Baghdad's delays in sending KRG's share of the budget, forced the KRG to take austerity measures. It has also caused delays in paying salaries of civil servants and security forces. As a result, the Kurdistan region experienced protests in the Sleimani and Halabja region early in December, 
which quickly became very violent. The KRG respects and upholds the right to peaceful protest, but opposes the burning of buildings and public property. We also, of course, lament the loss of life of both protesters and security personnel who were killed in the demonstrations. The protests have died down, and we hope tensions will continue to de-escalate. On another front, tensions between the KRG and the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK, has risen since the Sinjar Agreement was signed between Baghdad and Erbil. The agreement requires all of the militia groups, including the PKK, to leave the area. Unfortunately, PKK fighters have attacked the Peshmerga forces on a few occasions recently. On December 13th, a Peshmerga officer was killed at a checkpoint in the Ahmadi district. A few days later, Peshmerga forces came under attack by PKK and YPG fighters near the Peshkhabur border crossing between Rojava, northeast Syria, and the Kurdistan region. Fortunately, the Peshmerga and YPG commanders held an emergency meeting to normalize the situation. Meanwhile, on December 18th, the Turkish military fired 46 rounds of artillery shells in Batifa, a small town on the border of the Kurdistan region and Turkey. Turkey claims that its air and artillery strikes are targeting PKK positions along the border. However, Turkish shelling has killed many civilians and has caused vast destructions over the years. Hundreds of villages in Kurdistan region are no longer habitable because of the conflict between Turkey and the PKK. The KRG has consistently called on the Turkish government and the PKK to settle the disputes peacefully, through dialogue, and not to bring their fight into the Kurdistan region. The KRG played a key role in the peace process several years ago, and is ready to do the same again to reach a sustainable peace settlement for the Kurdish question in Turkey. Turning to the economy. In spite of all these difficulties, there is a silver lining. Two promising developments have unfolded that would strengthen the local economy. The first is that the first batch of Kurdish pomegranates produced in the Kurdistan region province of Halabja arrived in Munich, Germany and will soon be shipped to Sweden. Fredun Namdar, a Halabja businessman, initially introduced the fruit to the British market in November. He's planning to export his products to Canada and the United States in the near future. The second is that the UAE-based Dana Gas announced that natural gas production from the Kurdistan region Khormur field has reached an all-time high. This is significant because most of Kurdistan region's electricity is generated through natural gas. So it will help increase the electricity production in the Kurdistan region, which in turn helps the local economy as it will likely increase opportunities and reduce prices. Turning to the KRG representation's activities in the U.S. Earlier this month, KRG representative Bayan Sami Abdurrahman had a virtual meeting with Eric Olson, Iraq director at the National Security Council. She also met with Ludwig Hood from the office of the vice president. In the two meetings, she updated them on the recent developments in Kurdistan and Iraq and sought U.S. support for the Sinjar Agreement. She also had a virtual meeting with Duri Abuzaid, president of the American Chamber of Commerce Kurdistan, known as AMCHAM which is affiliated with the U.S. Chamber. They discussed ways the KRG office in Washington, D.C. and AmCham could increase their cooperation and coordination and do more to support American companies operating in Kurdistan. Finally, we continue to have exciting updates on culture. Alan Kaval, a Kurdish journalist, received the 2020 Albert Londres Prize, which is the highest French journalism award. It was for his reporting on Rojava. Alan reports for Francis Lamont and he was recently injured covering the Nagorno-Karabakh conflicts between Azerbaijan and Armenia. 
Also, Rania Othman, a German Yezidi author, won the Mara Kassens Prize for her debut novel, The Summers. Rania was born in Munich and studied creative writing at the German Institute for Literature in Leipzig. She has also written for several German newspapers. And now the interview with Sophia Schultz, the Director of International Programs at Arch International, and Julie Rockwell and Catherine Vecchi, who recently completed their master's degree in museum studies at the John Hopkins University. Welcome to the Kurdistan in America podcast, ladies. This is our final episode for season one. It's also a holiday special since we're approaching Christmas. We'll begin our discussion with Sophia. Sophia, please tell me a bit about Arch International, especially about the Stand with Nineveh project. Also, what's the relationship between Arch International and John Hopkins University? Hello, uh, Dedovan. Thank you so much for hosting this holiday special podcast. Um, we're very excited. You. Thank you. Very excited to be on here. Um, Art International is the nonprofit organization that I work for, based in Washington D.C. in the United States. Um, and Art International, the A R C H in Art, stands for Alliance for the Restoration of Cultural Heritage. We focus on areas where there has been conflict or there is still some kind of conflict. And we try to work with the local communities to preserve cultural heritage. And um, we have different projects. They're all on our website. And I really invite everyone to just um, check our website to see kind of the range of the projects that we do. And our Stand with Nineveh project, the one that you just um, asked about, Dedovan, that's our uh, project that focuses on Iraq. And we have been very, very closely working with the KRG on our um, Tomb of Nahum or Stand with Nineveh. We have different names for the project. And um, we are restoring an Old Testament prophet's shrine, Prophet Nahum. He's a biblical prophet, a minor prophet, who was specifically important for Jewish Iraqis and Kurdish Jews and is also respected by the Christian community in Aykosh. Aykosh is a Christian town and by um, all the Muslims in Iraq as well. And um, the KRG has really supported us from the beginning. And the KRG was also one of the first funders that um, believed in, in the project. And with help of the KRG, we could do the first stabilization of the shrine because the building was falling apart, was close to collapse. And um, there was in there was in 2018 when we um, kind of finished with all the stabilizing when the site was and we got more funding um, also from the U.S. government and that's when the full restoration started and we are now 95% done we are almost done very very close to completion. Um, and we had, to, because of the pandemic, we had to leave Iraq, unfortunately, earlier this year. But our team, the team that we work with from the Czech Republic mainly and also with locals, um, it's, it's kind of a team effort. We will restart the work as soon as we can go back, as soon as the situation is a little bit safer again. Um, we, we are collaborating with uh, Johns Hopkins University on this, on this project, the university, which is also based in Washington, D.C., featured 
this project as the topic of a course in fall for both for two of their programs, the Cultural Heritage Management Program and um, the Museum Studies Program. And we were very happy to um, for that for that collaboration to happen. And I'm happy today to be on this podcast with Julie and Kat and Katie, who both who I actually worked with um, as part of this this collaboration. Um, and they looked into ways of creating an online exhibition or an online experience, an exploration of the site, the, the Shrine of the Prophet Nahum, um, in yeah, to create that experience, but virtually. And um, they will they will say a few few more words about that. That's very interesting. I, I'm interested to know how did the program begin, and the timing of the program itself was during the time where ISIS attacked the Kurdistan region uh, and, and had taken over Mosul area as well. If you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's actually very relevant. And now looking back, we really sometimes think of certain, how certain certain things happened. We think of them almost as a miracle sometimes because of how everything developed and how successful we ended up um, being with this project. But you are you are absolutely right. ISIS was still in Mosul um, and in the surrounding areas when my colleagues Cheryl Benight and Adam Tiffin. Cheryl is the founder and president of Arch, and Adam is the deputy director. When they were in Iraq and when they um, tried to assess the site, find find out more about it, talk to more people on the ground, and that's when ISIS was still very close. Um, and then that's also when the Peshmerga. We talked to the Peshmerga um, on the front lines to see is it would it be safe to start the works, um, the stabilization works, and the assessment back then was um, that ISIS was retreating, um, being defeated slowly but surely. So yeah, there was that was a very crazy time, and we were also we were one of the first or we were the first NGO in that region to actually um, start a project. Um, and we remember hearing from locals in Ayakosh that um, some of them had already, most of them already had packed bags to leave in case they had to leave if ISIS actually came close, much closer than they did. They came maybe in seven kilometers or something. They came really, really close to the, the town. But some of them who already had packed their bags, and they said when they heard that there's an international organization that um, that is now restoring the shrine and that is, that is in that town and that is working with the people there that some of them decided to stay um, and the locals were also the ones who said after you do the stabilizing you have to come back immediately you cannot just leave for a couple of years you know and then because that's what they were used to that people come they start something they leave um, so absolutely yeah, was, I was there during that time yeah. you were in, um, in yeah I was in the Kurdistan I was in the Kurdistan region at the time when ISIS attacked, so I experienced the uh, influx of refugees and IDPs mm -hmm. coming to the region and, and the experiences, the horrible experiences at the time. Yeah, I heard from some when I was in Erbil. Maybe you had the same um, the same problems. How how long? That's just one thing that I remember now. But uh, getting gas for your car, you sometimes it it was almost a f you had to go in the middle of the night and then you stood almost for a whole day in line at a gas station just to get gas. That was a time when ISIS took over the Beji refinery and there was a shortage of gas. I recall that. Now let's go back to your mm -hmm. experience in the Kurdistan region. I believe you have visited twice. Tell me about your experience while you were visiting. Mm -hmm. 
Is there something that stood out compared to the other places yeah. you visited? Um, yeah, so that's right. I've been twice in the Iraqi Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan, and I was in Erbil. I was mainly based in Erbil while I was there. Um, I think that's probably that happens to most people. That the first before, the first time when I went, I had more worries. I was kind of looking into, I was looking online. I was trying to see is it safe. I had I tried to prepare. Um, bring I was thinking is do I need any medications or thoughts like that I, I kind of overthought everything um, and I think one of the most common questions that I received also while I was uh, planning to go and when I came back and I told people is always is it safe and I'm sure that you also know that Deloman and people always ask that question um, so I so that so it really really helped to just go once because then the second time I went, so the first time I went, I went with my colleagues, with Cheryl and Adam, and we had a driver and we had meetings all the time. Um, so it was very much, it was like a fast moving, very busy time, um, meeting a lot of new people. Everything was new, the, the city. And and then the second time I went, I went on my own. I stayed for two weeks. Um, and that's when I realized that Erbil is completely um, accessible. So I walked places. Um, I had breakfast in different places on my own with getting like nice Turkish coffee or going around kind of just, I even got a haircut in the end. That's how comfortable I got, even though I don't speak the language. <laughs> I just, I still kind of managed to get a, hair, a really nice haircut. Um, and then one story I also like to tell is that I've felt the safest just leaving my phone on the table in wherever I was sitting, just leaving it out in Berlin, Germany, where I lived for a while, in London, in Washington, D.C., in other cities, I wouldn't feel as safe. So it's, it's actually, even though there's there's the history of ISIS having come really close and there's these, there was a war and all of this, but actually when you go to Kurdistan, Iraq, when you're there, it's very safe and um, very pleasant to just, you can just get, get around very easily and things like that. That's, that's very true because if you go to the Citadel and where the bazaar is, the Grand Bazaar, the Old Bazaar, shopkeepers keep their stores open at night. And it's, it's pretty interesting phenomenon. Now uh, let's pivot to Julie Rockwell and Catherine Vecchi. I'll begin with Julie. Julie, to begin with, this is a two-part question. Tell me about the project that you worked on with Catherine. Yes, um, thank you so much, Delavan, for inviting us uh, for the holiday special. Uh, as a student in the Johns Hopkins uh, Museum Studies program, this is a this was a capstone class, so to speak, uh, working with Arch International, uh, with Sophia as uh, one of our uh, contacts and advisors for the museum projects class. Uh, this class was divided into four groups of four students each. And each group focused on specific interpretive uh, mediums for the shrine of the Prophet Nahum, uh, on-site exhibition, on-site audio or tour experience, community programs and learning, and online experiences. I was a part of the group online experiences with Katie and also classmates Tyler Douse and Brenda Mant. And we were tasked with developing an interpretive plan that would define online experiences within Arch International and the future Shrine of the Prophet Nahum websites. So as a team, we developed a conceptual wireframe uh, for two interactive or immersive online experiences, 
uh, a Prophet Nahum timeline and a map. And these were designed to not only inform audiences about the shrine, Al-Kosh and the Nineveh Plains region, um, but also to offer engaging educational opportunities to understand the shrine's connection to communities across the world. Again, our group did not create the actual experiences, but an interpretive plan for Arch to consider if there is future development of the timeline and map. Fascinating. Now, the second part of my question, what did you know about Kurdistan at the beginning of the program? Well, honestly, I did not know much about Kurdistan at the beginning of the program, except through my prior culinary arts teaching career, in which um, I taught international cooking and baking. When the classes focused on Middle Eastern regional cuisines, I would highlight the Kurdish diet, featuring yogurts and cheeses, pomegranates, dolmas, birani, kibbeh, naan, palo, uh, bulgur, plenty of fruits and vegetables from the region, and spices that are shared within the entire Indian subcontinent. Um, of course, baklava, halva, black tea with lots of sugar. So through these foods, I learned about the unique cultures in this area of the world, but I had never focused on cultural heritage interpretation before, especially knowing about the shrine of the prophet Nahum. Very interesting. I, I always got hungry all of a sudden. Yeah. Now, how did the program impact you? <laughs> The Johns Hopkins University Museum Studies program um, is part of my a transitional career from higher education, teaching, and education. Um, I was so fortunate within this class to work with exceptionally talented and skilled classmates. Uh, they understood the value of teamwork, the importance of our work together to produce uh, an interpretive plan for an actual real-world assignment for ARCH. In many of our classes, you know, we study museums through the online course structure uh, as case studies um, or um, doing interviews with, with actual um, museums and cultural heritage sites uh, experts. Uh, but to work with Arch International in this real world type environment to understand world heritage sites and the preservation of world heritage sites significantly impacted my understanding of the importance and the necessity to advocate uh, for this type of work. Um, inspiring work that we did together as a team and as a class with Sophia and Arch um, is very, was very inspiring to me uh, to support the work of organizations such as the Sites of Conscience and so many people who passionately work so hard to keep cultural heritage history and memory alive. Perhaps uh, the most impactful to me was Sophia's introduction to other significant figures who support the work of Arch, such as Edwin Shooker. He's currently the vice president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And our class was honored to have Mr. Shooker uh, give a presentation about his experiences growing up in Baghdad, where he escaped to the UK in 1971. And his story is featured in the documentary film, Remember Baghdad. So having the opportunity to speak to Mr. Shooker, the work of Sophia and Arch with this amazing team has just been the icing on the cake for finishing my last semester in this program. That's fascinating. I'm interested to have a tour or a pilgrimage through the program once it's done. Now, you mentioned that you first learned about Kurds through teaching international cuisines. I'm curious to know, what is your favorite Kurdish dish? Frankly, I love all of Kurdish cuisine and hope someday that I can experience it um, on site. However, I do enjoy making kibbeh, 
uh, stuffed with lamb, bulgur, mint leaves, pine nuts, uh, and having them dipped in a tahini or a mint yogurt sauce. It's absolutely delicious. Now I will turn to Catherine. Catherine, I want to know what sparked your interest in joining the program. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much. I think that's a really good question. It's kind of two parts between the program and the course. Uh, my background is in museums, specifically living museums. And whenever I was looking into uh, furthering my career and move, being able to move up, I knew having some additional education would be really imperative to that. And I thought that the Johns Hopkins University Museum Studies program would really be beneficial because it covers a wide variety of museum studies. And as Julie mentioned, this specific course is kind of like a capstone course, which normally our program has a two-week on-site seminar where you go to a particular city, you visit a variety of museums and historical sites, and kind of take all the information that you learned over the past few years and put it to work on site. But obviously with the pandemic, it wasn't possible for us to do that uh, for our last course. So we were offered this uh, few seminar uh, projects. And this one really sparked my interest because it was so far outside of my comfort zone, uh, specifically with doing things like guest experiences, looking at historical sites, um, and even just the region that the shrine is located in, I thought that if I was going to really push myself for a capstone course, this would be a great way to do it. Very interesting. I'm interested to know more about the master's program. Essentially, at the core of the program is cultural heritage interpretation. What does the interpretive program mean to you? And why is it so important? Absolutely. So for me, cultural heritage is something that's almost a, a basic human right. And it's really for those who are connected to the specific culture in question and those who are not. Uh, we sh all should be able to have the ability to learn, respect, hear from others, self-reflect on these cultural heritage sites um, or just various cultures in general. But to be able to do that efficiently and appropriately, there needs to be interpretation. And I think when there's not appropriate interpretation or resources out there, that's when we get a lot of things like discrimination, bias, assumption that really cloud the judgment of, of people who are trying to learn or trying to uh, expand their understandings. So Appropriate interpretation is really essential uh, in being able to do this. And I think even more so than that, interpretation allows for experts in the field or the site or the culture to really put forth their knowledge. But I don't think that experts necessarily are scholars, which obviously they are. Those who are uh, historians or in anthropology or in academia, obviously have a lot to be able to put forward. But I also think the quote, normal people uh, that are in the culture every day is really important to get their perspective as well. And I think that's something that the project that Julie and I were on, we really tried to focus with, uh, with something like our interactive map, 
where visitors to the site would be able to learn about pilgrimages as well as the geographical location. We really wanted to focus on things like oral histories and interviews from those who were nearby uh, so that you were able to get a complete understanding and experience in all of your senses and in all of the understanding so you can really get a grasp of that cultural heritage. Very interesting. Why does this matter to Kurdistan? I think that's a, a really great question. And it, again, kind of goes back to creating that understanding and respect and uh, acceptance of variety of different cultures. And I think the Shrine of Nahum is a really amazing example of that. Uh, for the most part, the pilgrimages that we're going there are for uh Kurdish Jews or Iraqi Jews, but Al-Kosh is a Christian community. So to see a community open their doors and find so much pride in the shrine that uh, is just something that really can be understood and reflected and appreciated from all over the world. But also with the spotlight that Arch is giving to the community and to the shrine, it's really bringing, again, a positive light to the area. And with things such as the online experiences, it really can teach people from all over the world, all different cultures, about Kurdistan, about the shrine, about Iraq. And it really can just open a lot of doors. Fascinating. I will turn back to Sophia now. Sophia, my my question to you is about the economic benefits of restoring and managing cultural heritage sites. Basically, a whole industry could potentially be created in the sector. What is your advice to the KRG on this? Creative economy um, and tourism as part of that traveling um, is it's I think now during the pandemic where most of us, not of course not all of us, but most of us spent way more time at home. Um, we actually, re I think some of us realized how important the creative economy is. Um, we were not allowed to travel anymore. We couldn't see any heritage sites in person anymore. Um, what did people do in their free time? They watch movies. Who makes movies? Artists. We read books. Who designs the book covers? Who writes the books? So I think it became really clear that we, we need culture to survive as human beings like we don't only need bread and water um so and then one thing we have learned with cultural heritage management and um focusing on culture the countries where it really came from the heads of state the highest ministries when it really becomes a policy priority that's usually when um, it's the most successful because investing in culture is usually not a priority. Um, it's a little bit more of a long-term um, plan. It's not an immediate success because people first have to learn about a specific site or it takes a while for post-conflict countries, especially. And yeah, I'm mainly talking about countries where there has been a conflict and now the country tries to work with the cultural assets and the wealth that, that it has. Um, so, but then when they do, when countries actually do focus on it from, from the top, let's say, um, then it becomes this great, this great engine, um, for so many things that come from it. Um, and one of the really big, um, benefits is infrastructure development. The infrastructure usually, is, uh, really, really benefits from it. And then, um, since 
since pe usually young people, and especially the Middle East has a lot of young people, um, the first jobs that young people often have in their lives after they graduate has something to do with travel and tourism often, or hotels, or that's, yeah, that's very common. Um, and then usually that's connected with learning new languages. And then what happens is that people learn first from scripts, but then they actually end up learning the language because they interact with many people um, on, on a daily basis. And then in countries where people have other jobs, they work on farms or they have other um, seasonal jobs, they can also use the tourism and travel industry to then, um, in these times where the farming, where the season is not good for whatever else they're doing, they can focus on a different, they can sell souvenirs or can give tours. Um, another really a great benefit of cultural heritage management in a sustainable and um, very inclusive way is that the local communities, they already care deeply about their culture because it's their identity. But often it's so much already them that that they don't sometimes don't actually understand why do other people come here and want, what do they really want to see? What, they are, what are the other people actually interested in? Um, so managing it in a, in a way where the local people are. And I think um, Julie and Katie were also saying that Cultural heritage really benefits from the people who know, who live the culture. Um, it's living. It's not just something from the past that you read in a book. Um, so that's really important to include people. And then one other thing I wanted to say is um, the inclusion. Oh, that also in the research in the recent years, new tourists, and they will come after the pandemic. There will be tourists again everywhere. Um, the tourists right now, what they look for the most is experiences. So I think even with the Citadel in Erbil, and actually we at Arch International, we looked into this once a little bit. We thought of some programming. And the Citadel um, in 2014, it was ins inscribed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's an amazing building. And um, Delovan, you were saying this last time when, when, I, when we spoke that it's the oldest, the longest continuously inhabited citadel in the world. Um, and it's right in the it's right in the center of Erbil. It's so it's right there. I mean, it's not really you don't have to travel far or anything. Um, so making it more uh, tourism for tourism for tourists makes it make it more exciting in some ways or include programming and experiences for people there. I think that would uh, really benefit the site, um, for example, and. Um, in uh, two countries that I think are interesting to to look to look at for um, lessons learned and how they kind of manage are uh, Rwanda and Cambodia. Rwanda, of course, went through a genocide and now it's really booming. And uh, from the tourism perspective, they really did a good job. And uh, Cambodia with Angkor Wat. Um, that's what just Angkor Wat is one. It's huge, but it's one heritage site. There's other heritage sites in the country. I don't know which year it was. Oh, 2013. So it's a little. It's a while ago. But from 2.6 million tourists, they they earned 60 million dollars. If it works, if everything kind of aligns, and if there's really a push from the government to make uh, to manage the cultural heritage, then it's a huge asset. Um, and um, another thing that happened in Cambodia is that looting. Um, almost stopped because before looting was part of people's life livelihood. They looted the site for gold and other artifacts because they were very poor and they had to survive. But if you make people part of something bigger, if they realize 
they actually have a prospect in it and they can make money in a, in a different, in a legal way that they don't have to loot their own heritage. Because usually people, they, they're attached to their own heritage. They don't want to loot a, a link and then sell it on, a market, on the black market. But they often have to. They don't have a choice. So if there's other things that people can do connected to the site and actually make money, learn uh, new languages, uh, learn new techniques, because when people come, you also exchange, there's intercultural exchange, you learn other things from them. So I think that there's a lot of benefits connected to the creative creative economy uh, on, on a lot of different, it, there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah. Great answer. Thank you. At the end of every interview, we ask our guests the same three questions. I'll begin with Sophia, Julie, and then Catherine. The first question is, when was the first time you heard about Kurdistan? Okay, so that's always an exciting question that I like to ask other people <laughs> when they look at me with big eyes when they say Kurdistan. Um, I think for, my, uh, for me, it was when I was um, a child in Germany, because Germany has a lot of Kurdish um, immigrants. Um, so that's definitely the first time I heard about Kurdistan. And then in, at my university in London at SOAS, that was probably the, the time I really understood more about what... I learned a little bit more about Kurdistan. Interesting. Julie? Uh, I would have to say, um, growing up in Pennsylvania, my world history classes in high school uh, and going to college in Dayton, Ohio at Wright State University back in the late mid to late 1980s is when I first heard about Kurdistan. Very well. Catherine? I would have to say as well, uh, probably in high school, I had a, a really great 10th grade world cultures teacher that uh, made sure to kind of cover all the different areas of, of world history and world culture would be whenever I really first heard about it. But it wasn't until I started in this course that I kind of started doing my own research and digging deeper into understanding. Very interesting. Now, the second question, what is a word or phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? For me, it's just the extremely friendly people that they make you want to come back. So whenever I went to Kurdistan, I was already looking, the, the two times I went, but I was always looking forward already to coming back. Julie? Uh, to me, I think of the phrase, hope through belonging. There seems to be this hopeful spiritual life expressed in Kurdistan and the people, and it, it seems so welcoming that it brings a sense of belonging, no matter the struggles and challenges. I think they're an inspiration. Thank you. And Catherine? I, I would say two of the words I think about are pro progressive and proactive, um, even with the region having so much oppression and hardships, they're still always looking at ways to overcome, ways to stay together, ways to uh, become kind of a, a new and forward-thinking group and region. And I think that's something that really can be looked at by other cultures and other countries as something we should all be really looking to mimic. Thank you. And our final question is, what is a word or phrase that sums up America for you? I think I was thinking back to the first time I, I thought about the United States more when we moved here and I kind of got to know it more um, from, from living here. And I think the easygoingness was something that I really appreciated um, and the, the, op the optimism 
and posi positivity. Thank you. Julie? I would have to say, at least right now in my lifetime and in our lives, uh, America is in the tipping point of our history, uh, the edge of possibilities of cultural, pol political, and social change. And I think that we're always striving for the better. Very interesting. And Catherine? I would say for me, it's untapped potential for positive change. Uh, I know for me, my, myself, something that I try to always look at is once I become good at something or I become knowledgeable in something, I, I kind of want to always be looking to the next thing on how to better myself. It's why I've gone back to school uh, to get do various degrees. It's something I try to instill into the people I manage is to always be bettering yourself. So with the U.S., with all of the resources that we have here, whether it's technology, education, uh, finances, any way that you look at it, there's just so much potential that once we reach uh, a, a new new level of whether that's cultural acceptance or educating others or just really bettering the world. Once we reach that, we should always be looking at the next thing we can do to help ourselves and those around the world. So just really tapping into that, um, that potential. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your lovely answers and for taking the time. Wishing you all Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you.